Thank you. Enjoyed uh, singing to the Lord with you today. We're going to look to uh, the scriptures in just a minute, but before we do that, um, I was talking with, uh, with Sean and thought it would be good to update you. A lot happens behind the scenes, and there are a lot of meetings and communication that goes on about the church right now. And uh, as, as I think uh, most of you know, uh, an organization called Baptist Church Planters is involved with providing some guidance and encouragement. And uh, then God has directed my wife Faith and me to be here for me to serve as interim pastor in coordination with uh, Baptist Church Planters and with, with uh, Northridge here. And uh, so just a lot of, lot of meetings, a lot of conversations happening. And, and I, I want to update you soon on, on some of those items. But there's one thing that I, we thought it would be good to make you aware of. Uh, Pat, Bill Edmondson has um, been here, preached here, fellowshiped with you all over the past couple of months. And uh, I think you all had had some discussions about the Edmondsons being more involved here. He has been, <clears throat> they have been doing mission work in Boston, Massachusetts, and recently moved to Iowa for them to uh, care for her parents who are aging and need some assistance. So they're over uh, in Williamsburg near Iowa City doing that right now. And uh, actually, uh, Bill and I had numerous conversations. We prayed together. We had some discussions about what that might look like. And just in the last couple of weeks, he communicated with me that he does not believe that, that they should commit to more involvement here at this time, just because of their situation in life, the uh, care they're providing for her family right now. And so uh, not, not that we'll never see them again or that he might not come and preach or teach here some or show up uh, at times, but uh, he's just not able to commit to a regular involvement or doing evangelism here in our community right now. And so I want to make you aware of that because I think that might have been a question for some of you. And uh, so we, we take that as from the Lord. I, I was eager and hopeful uh, because uh, I've just really come to appreciate uh, their ministry and the ways God has gifted them and his passion for reaching people with the gospel in, in this community. Um, certainly we can learn from him. We can catch some of that passion and hopefully that will continue and who knows how God might direct down the road. But I uh, just wanted to update you that way, and, and uh, God has something else for us in that area, and certainly all of us can be uh, learning and growing in outreach in our community. So I just want to mention that to you today as we get started. Now, we are going to be in Titus chapter 2, so I invite you to join me in your Bibles in Titus chapter 2. And uh, we have been looking into this little book of the New Testament, this Short letter from the Apostle Paul to Titus, who was on site there on the island of Crete and developing uh, the church there and uh, leadership in that church on the island of Crete there during the first century. And we know that because we have this in the Bible, which is God's Word, that it pertains to us as well today. So we are, we are studying together this little book of Titus and the, the theme of Titus is learning and living, so it's, not, it's about not only knowing what the Bible says, but also living by what God's Word says, and so we've been approaching it with that theme. And, and today we're going to continue talking about healthy living for Christians from Titus chapter 2. The role of men as leaders in the home and in the church is often emphasized 
And it should be because there is biblical basis for that. But Scripture does not neglect the importance of women in the home and in the life of the church. There are mothers and wives and big sisters who have influence in the home and in the church. There are spiritual mothers and sisters in Christ who disciple younger Christians and who do the work of ministry. There are many places in the Bible that highlight the importance of the role that that women have. And uh, we're going to look here in the book of Titus, but I just want to, to, for a second, allude to another section of Scripture where Paul starts saying hello and give my greetings to various people in the church in the city of Rome. And he says, uh, give my greeting to Phoebe, a woman named Phoebe. And he described her as a servant of the church and a helper of many. And Paul says, of myself also. And this is from Romans chapter 16. And Paul gives greetings to these different individuals. And he says, greet Phoebe, greet Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team. He calls my fellow workers in Jesus Christ. In fact, they had a church meeting in their home. He greets Mary, who labored much for us. Andronicus and Junia, probably a man and his wife, my fellow prisoners. Tryphena and Tryphosa, some people think those were twins, twin ladies, who have labored in the Lord. This one's interesting. Greet Rufus and his mother, and then Paul says, and mine. And I think what he meant there was that that Rufus's mother was a biological mother to that man named Rufus, but a spiritual mother to Paul. She cared for him. She prayed for him. She influenced him in a godly way. That's fascinating. Philologists and Julia, maybe another husband-wife, maybe another couple. Nereus and his sister. So again, you see greetings to these individuals, and, and inclu- he includes many women in his greeting and acknowledging their important role in the church. Some of them are married. Some of them are single. Some of them are older. Some of them are younger. They were laboring. They were helping, and they were encouraging, and their names are immortalized in Scripture. We also see the important role that women have in life, in the home, in the church, by how Paul emphasized the impact of their character and their conduct in his letter to Titus that we're looking at together. And and Paul knew of this impact, but he also knew of what some of the problems were in the city of Crete. They were just surrounded by ungodliness and worldliness and sensuality and wrong values in life and corruption and immorality. And, and he knew that, that the Christian men and women needed to learn to align their lives with this new person that they were in Jesus Christ. The impact of your life is more significant than you realize. Your life, the way you conduct yourself out in day-to-day living, can discredit the Word of God. It can actually damage the reputation of the gospel. Or your life can enhance the credibility of the gospel. 
We're going to get to it. I'm going to read the verses, but for now, just glance at the end of verse 5 as he addresses first men and then women. He says at the end of Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, verse 5, he says, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Do you hear that? I mean, that's, those are strong terms, aren't they? At, in verse 6, he says, you have the opportunity to adorn the gospel. So, so our conduct Conduct can either damage the effect of the gospel and people's view of of the scriptures of God's word, or it can help. It can give credibility to these things. So the emphasis of this book is learn and live. What you believe should have an impact on how you conduct your daily life. And here in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, Paul is telling Titus, As for you, speak the things which are proper, which are fitting, which are appropriate, which correspond to sound or healthy doctrine. So our beliefs should be healthy, but also the way we live should reflect that as well. And then he applies this to older men, older women, young women, young men. And he uses this term sound or healthy repeatedly in connection with that. So, so we're talking about healthy Christian living, and today specifically we're talking about healthy Christian living for women. So let me keep reading. Verse 2, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound, or healthy, again, in faith, in love, in patience. Now verse 3, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient, or submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So we've, we've talked about the men, and we're going to focus today on Christian women. So these are marks of a mature Christian woman. These are areas to grow in. Some of them relate to all women. Some of them relate to just married women. Don't check out, men. Remember, this is a prayer list for you as you encourage and pray for the women who are in your life, whether they are, it happens to be your wife or daughters or a sister or an aunt or a grandmother uh, or, or your sister in Christ here in this church. And I would say this too for men. This might this might sound a little bit um, humorous, but but I think it's I think it's important to think in terms of one day if you're not married, God may direct your life towards someone that you will spend the rest of your life with. And these are ways to pray, ways to pray for that person that you may not even know yet. You need to become the kind of man that Paul describes in Titus two. But you can also be praying for and looking for the kind of woman that Paul describes in Titus chapter 2 as well. So there's something here for everyone. The emphasis in our text is on older women having certain qualities yourselves and mentoring others as well. So let's talk about this. The first one we actually talked about last week, and that is seeing life as sacred. And we see that in verse 3 where he says reverent in behavior. The word reverent is from a word that means related to the place and the activity of a temple. So so this is like a a priestess, in a sense, doing sacred work. So you are conscious of God in everything that you do. 
You are sensitive to opportunities to make choices that honor him, and you live out your days for the glory of God. Whether you're young or old or somewhere in between, you can live a meaningful, God-honoring life by seeing it as sacred and making your choices accordingly. Now, we talked about that last week, so we're going to move on. There are three more of these qualities that we will look at today. And, and the next two are stated in the negative. So he says, not, don't be like this. And then the last one is another positive. So the, the second quality here is to avoid malicious conversations. Now, this gets really practical, doesn't it? This gets very specific. Because he says in verse 3, the older women likewise, they be reverent in behavior, and then not, again in the negative, not slanderers. So again, this implies that in, the, in their society, this was a problem. And maybe as these newly saved ladies were coming out of that, that normal societal interaction, having conversations out and around with other women, that this is something they need to be conscious of, an area where they needed to, to change. And, and the Greek word, which is the original language of the New Testament, is, is interesting behind this word slanderers, and you might recognize it. It's the word diabolos. You ever heard that word? Diabolos. It's used to refer to the devil. And it means to be an accuser, an accuser. So, so the idea is don't be an accuser of other people. Uh, the New American Standard Bible translates this malicious gossips, malicious gossips. So what he's referring to here is conversations, right, when, when we're talking with people, and we're talking about someone. So the conversation has taken a turn where now all of a sudden the topic is not just between you and the other person, but you're now discussing another person. And it becomes critical and demeaning. Maybe repeating something that could be true or even is true, but it's damaging. It's hurtful. Raising suspicions, sharing rumors. And this is a danger when people get together. And this is, this is not just something that women are susceptible to because we can all fall into this trap. But he is here focusing on women and, and we can even slander with a hint, even with a, a raised eyebrow, as we're talking about somebody, or a tone of voice. And the negative here, not slanderers, again, emphasizes that, that we should be different in how we talk, and especially how we talk about other people. I think it also means that, that you should pull yourself up short. You should yank the reins if you're in a conversation and all of a sudden your mind is starting to go that way and, and you realize you're about to say something and you think, oh, wait a minute. Let me just hold on for a second. Let me push pause. Is what I'm about to say to someone about another person slander? Is it malicious gossip? Is it hurtful? It could be about a neighbor. It could be about a coworker. Could be about one of your teachers if you're a student. Could be about a pastor, a deacon. Could be about your husband. Could be about your son-in-law, your daughter-in-law. If you're a man, it could be about your wife. I remember getting on, uh, I was traveling one time and 
sat down in an airplane seat, and, and I overheard a conversation a couple of rows in front of me, and it was two men, and they didn't know each other, and they were getting acquainted, and, and they were talking loudly enough that I could hear them a couple rows behind. All of a sudden, this man just starts bashing his wife to this person he didn't even know. Like, ah, oh, you know, she's this, and she's that, and can't believe this, and like, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so malicious. So it it's not, just, it's not just one gender or the other. We're all susceptible. He, he repeats the idea in chapter 3, verse 2. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Uh, he says, remind them in verse 1, be subject to rulers and so on. Verse 2, to speak evil of no one. To speak evil of no one. And again, that's this idea of being malicious. Let me suggest a few questions. These are not original with me, but these are questions we can think about as we evaluate how we talk about other people, and maybe even in the split second when, our, when our, our mind is working and our tongue is getting ready to go into motion, we might ask ourselves, first of all, does this build somebody up or does it tear them down? Does what I'm about to say build? Is it going to build the person up I'm talking about? Or is it going to tear them down in some way? Is it going to do damage to their reputation in some way? Another question to ask is, if that person were standing here with us, would I say the same thing? Would I, would I use the same tone? Would I have the same look on my face as I talk about them, if they were present? If that person has actually committed a sin or has offended me in some way, should I be talking about them or should I be talking what? Can you finish it for me? To them, exactly, exactly. Because that's what Scripture instructs us to do. If i got a problem with somebody, I'm supposed to have a conversation with that person. As uncomfortable as it may be, that is the path to take, right? Not to slander them, not to bash them, not to criticize them, demean them, accuse them to other people, but to go to them and say, hey, can we have a talk? We need to, to work through some things. So, so if it is a sin or, or if I have been offended by this person, should I be talking about them or shouldn't I be talking to them? And here's another question. This is where we have to check our hearts. Am I saying this because I like the attention or because I love the person? Because it's true. If we have some little juicy tidbit, some little bit of scandal, it, it draws attention to us, doesn't it? It's like, oh, I have something to share here. And in our malicious hearts, reality is that that's sometimes what's going on, right? We want the attention or we want to hurt the other person. So the question then is, am I saying this because I like the attention or am I saying it because I love the person? Now, we won't go there, but, but in, in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gave some very specific instructions about how we communicate and one of the things he says is, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. So corrupt is that idea of damaging, hurtful, corrupting, corrosive communication come out of your mouth. So again, he says, yank the reins, put on the brakes, just, just close your lips, right? Stop your tongue from flapping. So let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. But he says that which is good for edification to build up. And he says that it may minister grace to the hearers. So, so your conversation 
has the potential to tear people down or to actually be an instrument of the grace of God, blessing God's favor in people's lives, the people you're talking to and the people you're talking about. So that's what we need to do, isn't it, is to, to make that exchange of communication that tears down for communication that builds people up and encourages them and actually helps them to grow in their Christian life. And as you think about aligning your, your life and your communication with God's word and, and with God's best in a way that will not do damage to the, to the testimony of God, but will actually adorn the truth about God, is there anything you need to repair? It's good to think about, is there anybody you need to go back and, and say, you know what, when I, when I said those things to you about that person, that was wrong when I did that. And I'm sorry. And I'm asking you to forgive me. And if it has somehow hurt that other person you were talking about, do you need to go to that person and say, you know what, I was so wrong. I was prideful, I was arrogant, I was malicious, I was hurtful, I'm, I, I'm embarrassed about it. This is uncomfortable, but I need to make this right. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? It may be somebody in your family. Maybe somebody you haven't spoken to in a year or two. But this is God's way, isn't it? To reconcile, make things right. And he does forgive. It's always a blessing when other people forgive. And they say, you know what? I was hurt by that. Or yeah, I did think that wasn't good when you said that. But I forgive you. Brother, sister, I forgive you. And you can go on and grow, and, and they will as well. So there's always a good way to handle these things. I was in a, uh, for some reason today, the illustrations that have come to my mind, I think they're all negative. <laughs> I teach preaching, and you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to have some positive illustrations. So maybe something will pop into my mind as we go. But for some reason, these are all negative, all right? Maybe you can think of some positive ones. But I, where, where we used to live, and I was a pastor, I, I used to go to the Panera Bread about once a week at a certain time, and I would do some studying there, just like to kind of get out of the office, get into that setting, enjoy some coffee and a bagel, and, and, uh, and sit there. And there, there, were, there were two men, again, men, that used to come in at the same time. And, and repeatedly, I heard these men talking, and it became apparent. Again, it was loud enough. I wasn't, you know, trying to eavesdrop, but it was just loud enough that I could hear them, and they weren't trying to hide anything. And they were talking about their church, and they were talking about specific people in their church and, and leaders in their church. And they were just, again, just criticizing and, and bashing. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, how can we, you know, help? It was just like, ah, oh, this person does this, and ah, oh. just really just harsh and, and my thought about that was, boy, if I were thinking about going to a church, if I were looking for a church, I might ask them what church they go to and avoid that one, right? Because of just how, how critical they were, not in a constructive way, not in a helpful way, but in a, I would say, a demeaning and, and harsh way. But that's a reminder of the impact, isn't it? In a negative way, that's a reminder of the impact our conversations have about people, about ministry, about God's work. It can do damage or it can have a positive effect. And so we need to really think about that and evaluate ourselves, men and women, and understand how we need to change and grow accordingly. There's another negative that we see here. And that's also in verse 3 where he says that they be 
uh, not given to much wine. So I'm going to um, formulate this idea as stay away from enslaving addictions. Stay away from enslaving addictions. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago in connection with the men. So just a reminder here. I won't go back through those, those points, but just a reminder here. The idea is don't be under the influence of a substance, an intoxicating substance. Don't be under the influence, but rather be filled with the Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. And here the emphasis is on don't become enslaved to it. That's the idea of given to. You are given over. It has become a controlling element in your life. And here he's talking specifically about alcohol. Again, not to belabor it because we did talk about it, but just to emphasize that this is something that both men and women can be vulnerable to. And especially if we are looking to something like alcohol as a source of pleasure, or escape from stress and reality. And this is something that not only the women of Crete, but women today can fall susceptible to, the pressures of life, seeking an escape and some pleasure through alcohol. And it can quickly become an enslaving power in your life. Paul said this, all things are permissible for me. But he said in 1 Corinthians 6, I will not be brought under the control of anything, of anything. Could be Amazon shopping. Could be binge-watching shows on, on TV or on a streaming service. There are all kinds of things that we can become enslaved to, that we can seek escape and pleasure in, that become addictive to us. And we, we can't live without it, and we gravitate to it in in times of pressure and stress, and all of a sudden, they become controlling forces in our lives. And, and the idea of addiction is that you do it compulsively, and it's destructive. It's hurting you and hurting the people around you. And I could tell, and you may know, uh, true stories of individuals that, that this has happened to, and Christians, um, even in this area of alcohol. So, beware. Be on guard. Don't allow yourself to become enslaved. If you have become enslaved, you can be free. I'm going to talk about that more in connection with another topic here in just a few minutes. One of the critical elements of Bible Christianity is that we reproduce. And I don't just mean biologically. We reproduce spiritually. One generation of Christians influences the next generation to not only embrace the truths that we find in God's Word, but also to grow, to grow in behavior that reflects those beliefs. In other words, to learn and live. One generation influences the next generation to learn truth and to live by it. This does happen by example. We watch others' lives and we, we learn from them. But it also, this reproduction spiritually also needs to happen on purpose. It needs to be intentional. This reminds me of what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2. He said, the things you've heard of me, the same you commit to faithful men, that they may be able to teach others also. That's the generational impact of truth, passing it on and doing it on purpose, doing it intentionally. I think that's the, the principle Paul is emphasizing here at, at the end of verse 3 in Titus chapter 2. 
where he says that the older women should be teachers of good things. He's talking about teaching by example, but also by instruction. Not only being an example, not just doing this passively, but doing it on purpose, doing it intentionally, doing it actively by teaching. So the fourth quality of healthy Christian living for women is for you to become not only a doer, not only a practitioner, but you yourself become a teacher. You become an influencer. You become a mentor to others, don't you? You actually help others who are coming after you to learn and to live. He says, teachers of good things. What are the good things? Well, I think it's what he's talking about in verses 4 and 5, which we'll get to. So teachers of good things, these good things. In verse 4, he uses another word. He says, admonish the young women. So again, here you see the generational impact. You see one group of ladies intentionally passing on not only beliefs, but also behaviors to the next generation. And he uses the word admonish. And that that sort of sounds like scolding, but that's not really the, the idea of this word. It means to instruct them to live in a wise manner. We've actually seen this word before. It's used in in verse 2 and in verse 5 and in verse 6 and in verse 12. It's the idea of being sensible. So so admonish means teach them to be sensible. Teach them to use good judgment. Teach them to not just live by impulse or by the fads and the messages swirling around you and pressing in to shape your life. And the marketing and commercialism and celebrities and social media influencers. No, don't let those shape your life. You use good judgment. You make wise choices. So admonish them is the idea of of instructing them to live in a wise way. So you put these ideas together. Teach and admonish means that older women are to intentionally influence the next generation. You are to be an example, but not only to be an example. You are to have conversations. There should be times when you sit down together and tell younger women how to live in very practical areas of life. And that might include cautioning them against pitfalls and mistakes and dangers. And some of those mistakes you've made yourself. But you're willing to say to a younger woman, you know what? Be careful of this. Because I made this mistake, and I want to help you to avoid that. And to encourage them toward good choices. And ultimately, this is about not just conforming to a set of, of behavioral standards that we've adopted in church culture. But, but remember, the, the, the outcome here is that they would, would do credit to the gospel. That they would adorn the doctrine of God with their lives. So how do you know if this is talking to you? How do you know if you're an older woman? I need to tread very carefully. I think we understand that this is a relative term. And if you look around you, and there are women, young ladies in your life, and you are ahead of them on the path of life, that you're older than they are, aren't you? And wherever you are on that scale, you can, you can turn around, you can look back, and you can see those younger women, younger relative to your age and your stage of life and your experience and your maturity, 
and say, hey, let's get together. Let's have a cup of coffee. Let's sit together for a few minutes after a a church service and talk. And let me share with you my testimony. Let me tell you how God saved me. Let me tell you how God, what God has taught me, what he has, what he has shown me through some mistakes as well as through some of the lessons he has shown me along the way. So if you're an adult and there's someone younger than you, then probably you should be influencing them. I think many men and women struggle with feeling inadequate. Who am I? I have my own struggles. I'm trying to overcome my own sin problems. Uh, I have made mistakes. Who am I to tell somebody else how to live? And we struggle with that feeling of inadequacy. I think there are answers to that. You do have something to offer. God has worked in your life in unique ways. There are things that you can share. If you've made mistakes, you can speak from experience. If you're too busy, you might need to evaluate priorities. As I've been applying these concepts all along, and I'm just kind of laying a little bit of groundwork here, uh, here in Titus chapter 2, as I've been talking about these these qualities, I've tried to, to draw our attention not only inward to ourselves and our families and our church people, but to think outward and to think ahead. That, as we pray, as we spread the gospel, as we invite people to come in these doors, as we, as we expand our circle and as we welcome people that there are going to be brand new believers. There will be Christians maybe who have wandered, who have strayed, who have fallen, but are finding their way back to a walk with God. Or just younger people, college students. We, we have a good working relationship with a, a Christian college that happens to be in the area. Or maybe there are students from other colleges that might find their way here. They're younger than you. There's a lot of potential. So I hope that, that we will not just sit back and, and watch them from a distance, but walk across the room, engage in conversation, and become an influence in their lives. That's what this is about. And, and I'll say this as we get into this as well. Um, we certainly don't come to you as experts, um, but God has allowed us to have some experience And Faith, my wife, has developed uh, mentoring for women in churches and has taught this and and involved women in this. And so if this is something you're thinking, well, how do I even get started? And what would I even talk about? And what could this look like? Again, not not as experts, but but as somebody with experience, I encourage you to say to Faith, hey, so what can this look like? And just let let her talk with you about that. She would love to share about that with you. So, so as we get into the, t- the text now here in, um, in verse 4, uh, we see the, the older teaching and admonishing the younger, so having an influence on them. So the, the, this is a quality for the older women, but also it relates, of course, to the younger as well. And I'm going to do this in, in two categories um, with some topics in each one. And I, I see these, these qualities he talks about in verse 4 and in verse 5 in, in two categories. I'm going to highlight these, give a little bit of a description uh, talk about some in more detail than others. So the first category, these are not on the screen, so if you're taking notes, you can jot these down. The first category is your home life. Home life. Teach them to love their husbands, to love their children. In verse 5, to be homemakers, obedient to their own husbands. So what this means is, for those who are married, 
Your affection is toward your husband and your children. It means you're not self-centered. You're not primarily career-minded. Just as Christ loved us, and just as husbands are to love their wives, and as husbands we are to set the tone of selflessness and sacrifice for others, wives reflect those characteristics as well. Loving, loving their husbands, loving their children, giving themselves for them, showing affection to them as a priority in their lives. Paul used this term, homemakers, before the local furniture store did. It's made up of two words joined together, the word home and the word work. And the idea is that for a married woman, that her home is her primary vocation. It is her primary place of work. It means your family, if you have one, is where you direct your energy and your attention and your time primarily. It is normal in our society today for family to be one among various priorities. Social life, athletic pursuits, a career. It's not that these are wrong, not that they don't have their place, but if, if home life gets pushed aside, if, if home life takes a lower place, then your life is out of alignment with God's best for you. Paul goes a step further and uses what we would probably consider a countercultural phrase when he says obedient. Actually, the idea in the word in verse 5 is submissive. It's an attitude of the heart as well as an action, submissive to their own husbands. This is a Greek word that means to arrange yourself in alignment with, to arrange yourself under. It's the idea of submission. When God created the first man and woman, he designated a sovereign order. He designed a husband and a wife to have complementary roles that we fit together. He placed the husband in a position of initiative, of initiating love, of setting the tone spiritually, in a sense of leading the way. And he placed the wife in a role of a helper who complements him a helper who fits with him so that together, as Paul told Adam and Eve to do their work in the garden, that they were able to do that better together. He made them to fit each other, and he does that for us as well. I'm just highlighting these qualities. We could go a long way and talk about them in detail. We may do that another time. But I would just ask you, have you arranged yourself within, in alignment with, and under the leadership of your husband? Your personality, your will, your ambitions, and are you working as a team and are you letting him lead? That puts husbands in a position of being leaders and we need to take that responsibility, don't we? And not be a frustration to our wives in that way. So we can all grow in these areas. So, so Paul addresses the home life and he says that older women should have an influence on younger women in these areas, modeling it, but also instructing in these areas as well. The second category includes relationships in the home, but I think it extends beyond that. So we've talked about your home life. The second category is your personal life. These qualities of who you are as a person, and we see in verse 5, to be discreet, 
to be chaste, and to be good. Let's talk about these. The word discreet, again, is this idea of being sensible, of using good judgment. And it must be important because Paul repeats it over and over, doesn't he? Don't be impulsive. Don't be self-indulgent. Don't be controlled by internal impulses. Don't be shaped by external influences. Let your life be shaped by God. Let your desires be driven to please God. Let your choices be guided by God's will. So use good judgment. Be discreet. That is the idea. So older teach younger to do this, and younger women learn from them to be sensible and to use good judgment. The word chaste is interesting. That's sort of an old-fashioned word, isn't it, to be chaste? And it means probably what you're thinking, to be morally pure. It especially refers to sexual purity, keeping yourself morally pure before marriage and during marriage. So according to God's design, physical intimacy is for a man and woman who are married to each other. His will is for you to wait for marriage and to be faithful within your marriage. And, and that's a probably somewhat uh, obvious way of thinking about this. And it's a way that we naturally think, well, I need to keep myself morally pure until I'm married. I need to stay faithful and not get involved in an outside relationship with anyone while I am married. And those are obvious applications of this. But you and I know well that in our day there are other ways to fall, other ways to be tempted. And our society is permeated with opportunities to view images and to watch videos that will take our minds away from this purity. It's called pornography. Graphic sexuality is the idea. And it can take our minds and... and awaken our desires and pull us away from this purity in our minds and eventually even in our lives. Now, this is interesting because this is usually thought of in connection with men, and it is a problem. It is a pandemic, a moral pandemic with us as men. But it's not exclusively a male problem. According to some statistics, nearly a third of pornography viewers are women. And curiosity can turn into a craving, and pretty soon you find yourself, again, I'll use this term, addicted. You seek it compulsively, and it's destructive, and you have a hard time controlling it. Now, what I want to do with this this morning is encourage you. And Faith and I have been Christians and have been around Christians and in church ministry long enough to know that we are not exempt, right? And that anybody in this room could be struggling with this. So I want to give you some hope. I want to show you something. We're going to go to another passage. Would you you go with me to Romans chapter 6? Romans chapter 6. Because I want to encourage you that not only should you avoid moral impurity, whether it's physically or visually or in your imagination. But you can keep yourself pure. You can overcome a struggle that you might have in this area. And there are a couple of keys to that. 
One is honesty, which we'll talk about in a minute. The other one is the power of Jesus Christ. And I'm not just what used to be called a sky pilot here. So a preacher that, you know, basically just kind of his, 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 uh, his, his mind's in the heavens and he's no earthly good, right? No, I'm talking truth here. This is reality. The power of Jesus Christ can enable you to escape and be free from something that's controlling in your life. And this is what we find in Romans chapter 6. Let me read for us, starting in verse 1. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? And you can plug whatever sin you're struggling with right in there. Continue in whatever it is. That grace may abound just because God is gracious and he'll forgive me. No, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Let me stop for a second because I want to adjust our thinking just a little bit. If you have read this passage, maybe study this text, you might think in terms of obligation. Oh, God saved me. He has shown me grace. Therefore, I shouldn't continue in sin. But I want to adjust that just a little bit. I think what he's emphasizing in this passage is not just that you shouldn't, but that you won't. What he's laying out here for us is hope. This is your new life. He he says, if if you've died to sin, are you going to live any longer in it? And the answer is no. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Let me explain a couple things here. First of all, when he's talking about baptism, My understanding of this is he's not talking about being baptized in, like we have back here, a baptistry in water. He's talking about the fact that you were placed together, immersed together with Jesus Christ when he died on the cross and rose again. When you believe in Jesus to save you, you are joined with Christ. You are immersed with him so that that his death counts for you and his resurrection counts for you. All right? So just keep that in mind. So we call this union with Christ. Your union with Christ. When you were saved, when you trusted in Jesus to save you, you were united with Christ. So he says, if you're saved, if you were united with Christ, not just you shouldn't live the same way, you won't live the same way. In fact, when he says at the end of verse 4, Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Again, that is not a term of obligation. It is a term of promise. You shall walk in newness of life. Some commentators call this the inevitability of your sanctification. If you have Christ in you, you will live a new life. Now, what he goes on to say here is that you have to recognize that. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, that's who you were in Adam, a sinner, was crucified with him, that the body of sin, that's your physical body, with its inclinations towards sin, might be done away with. And the idea of 
care is not that it's annihilated, but power is gone of sin over you. That we should, again, not obligation, but, but promise, we shall no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. If we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing, again, this is something you, you grow in your understanding of. You know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he, Christ, lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon, calculate, plug it in to the equation in your mind that you are dead indeed to sin, but you are alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. Then he goes on to talk about presenting your body to Christ. I won't go further in that this morning. I just want to point you to it and point it out to you to encourage you to understand this reality of, you, of, of your union with Christ. And it gives you hope that you're not on your own. And if you will put into your thinking the fact that you've been raised with Christ and you will live a new life and your body is no longer under the control, it's no longer a slave of your sinful impulses, and you can present your mind and your body and your activities and your your passions and your appetites to God and say, God, I belong to you. I want my body, my mind, my life to do your will. And he will help you do that. Now, we'll go back to Titus, and let me just mention the other element of honesty. So so you can escape. Honesty includes confession to God. God, I've been impure. It's wrong. Receiving his forgiveness, because he does forgive. And maybe getting help from someone you trust. Older women... Be the kind of friend to younger women that one of them could come to you one day and say, I am struggling with moral purity. I am struggling with pornography. That takes a lot of trust, doesn't it? And this goes for men too. So that you can help that young woman be pure. Maybe recover purity in her life. That's the emphasis here. So honesty and the power of Christ. Your union with Christ means you can walk free and relationships with others in the church help us so that we have someone to go to when when we need help. Now, it's ideal if that's within your family. That's great. But some people don't have that. So be the kind of person that can help someone else. One more quality we see in verse 5, Titus chapter 2, verse 5, good. And that means generally doing what's right. It may include the idea of just having a sweet spirit, being kind in words, especially in the setting of home, but with everybody you have contact with. We all get tired, can get grouchy, edgy, irritable. That happens. But when it happens, get alone. Give control to the Holy Spirit. Let his fruit come out in your life. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control.
So let that goodness, that sweetness, that kindness show in how you speak to your family and to others as well. How serious is this? Look again at the end of verse 5. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. I have written here in the margin of my Bible three, three words that, that give an idea of what blasphemed means. Maligned, criticized, or discredited. That the word of God would not be maligned by other people who watch your life. That it would not be criticized by people who watch your life. That it would not be discredited because of the way you live your life. People are watching our lives. And some are looking to discredit Christianity. And the people who are watching us are looking for inconsistencies. What is probably the number one accusation from outsiders, unbelievers, about Christians? Those hypocrites, exactly. And he says, don't give them a reason to say that. We should be frustrating to people that want to do that. They should not be able to find a glaring major inconsistency between what we say we believe, what we put on our sign, and how we actually live our lives. They should see that what we believe impacts, in fact, has a radical transformational impact on our lives and and have to admit, they would have to admit, you know what, I, I don't buy it, but they live what they believe, that's for sure. And that's a great responsibility for all of us, isn't it? People will formulate their view of God by what they see in the way we live. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, which we'll get to. And even in verses 7 and 8, I think he's talking about Titus, so we would say pastors too. People formulate what they, what they think of God. And our goal should be to enhance the credibility of the gospel and not damage it by how we live. It's a great responsibility, but also it's great potential, isn't it? We've been talking on Wednesday nights about 1 Peter 3.15, which, which refers to outsiders, everyone who asks for the reason of the hope that's in you. So our lives can actually create that curiosity, and people want to know. So let's all of us commit to living in a way that our daily conduct has this effect. Not damaging the credibility of the gospel, but enhancing it. And giving people around us a motivation to want to know more about this truth. And more about the person, Jesus Christ, who has made this difference in our lives. I'd like to ask you to bow and just have a moment of quiet prayer. I'm going to say some words, and if you would like to pray something like this, I encourage you to do it in response to what you've heard today and even in the previous weeks. Lord Jesus, through my union with Christ and through the work of your Spirit in my life, help me to be sober, respectable, self-controlled, healthy in my faith, in my love, in patience, 
to view my life as sacred, not to be a malicious gossip, not to be enslaved by any substance, alcohol or other, to be a woman who teaches good things, to be a young woman who loves my husband, loves my children, uses good judgment, is morally pure, a homemaker, good, submissive to my husband. And help me make the choices and the changes to align my life with who you are and who you're making me to be for your glory and for the cause of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.